It's great to hear all of your voices every week, especially as we essentially sing the sermon before we get to the passage and get to the sermon. Uh, John and praise team, thank you for leading us into our, our passage today, really, that talks about redemption. Last week and this week has kind of been a, um, a package deal, as it were, talking about the kindness of God last week, dealing with uh, the redemption of God this week. And just like last week, there are difficulties in trying to, to understand what really does redemption mean. It's kind of that distant term, kind of that theological big word that we sing about a lot, we maybe even talk about from time to time, we read in the scripture, but but we really don't understand the significance of what is redemption. So just like with last week, I I thought it'd be important for us or or good for us to kind of just fill out what, what is redemption. So here's kind of the use of the word over the last 100 or 120 years or so. Um, You can see that it's not a, a concept that has been used as often as it once was, but the, the challenge is that it should probably be tapered off even more, but in the, in the use of this word in culture, it's kind of been hijacked, as it were, borrowed, and kind of repurposed for other things. So let's, let's talk about what is redemption. What's the definition of redemption? Oxford Languages says this, to, to compensate for the faults or bad aspects of something, to gain or regain possession in exchange for a payment, to atone or make amends, to save from sin, error, or evil. That's a pretty good definition. Merriam-Webster puts it this way, to buy back, to get or win, to free from captivity by payment of ransom, to release from debt, to free from the consequences of sin, to remove the obligation by payment, to exchange for something of value. And even in the definitions, you can kind of see there's kind of a a wide range of use depending upon how you are deploying this word in everyday conversation. Perhaps one of the biggest challenges of this word is when we talk about redeeming something, we use it in ways that are entirely different from this original design. For example, you redeem a coupon. What part of redemption is redeeming a coupon. How petty, how small, like, is it really that significant? It kind of, kind of takes the, the depth and richness out of the term when we talk about it in those superficial kinds of ways. Or when somebody talks about wanting to redeem themselves, um, you have a sports figure, whether they're a baseball player or a football player, and uh, we talk about, hey, that guy really redeemed himself. Well, what does that mean? Well, it just means that he saved face. You know, it, it means that he made some really bad plays. Uh, he showed that he probably wasn't as professional as what he expected to be, but he finally came to a place of needing expectations. He redeemed himself. That's not what the Bible is referring to when it talks about redemption. And so when we talk about redemption, it's important that we locate redemption in, in the way the Bible locates redemption. So let's give a Bible definition. What is redemption? Well, redemption is ransom, the payment of an amount or price for the release of someone or something from captivity. And that, by the way, is kind of the the, the theme, releasing from captivity, from bondage, releasing somebody from oppression. It's also deliverance, ransom, or release. 
So this morning when we talk about redemption, we need to, we need to remember that it has bondage and slavery kind of in the backdrop being purchased out of bondage. Let me give you some Bible examples. Exodus chapter six, verse six. God uses this of himself when he says, therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. I will rescue from their bondage, there's their word, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Don't forget who you were. Don't forget you were slaves in Egypt. You were under bondage, under their rule, and I redeemed you. I bought you out. I purchased you for, for myself. The psalmist says in Psalm 34, 22, he says, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. And, and now we kind of have this future look of what redemption will do in terms of purchasing us out of the, some sort of bondage to sin. In Isaiah 43, verse 1, Isaiah says this, But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Here's another concept of this purchase price, this redemption that we enjoy. The purchasing power of God did not just uh, redeem you out of slavery, but purchased you for himself. You belong to God. Galatians chapter 3, 13, we turn our eyes just briefly on the New Testament where it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And there we come to understand and appreciate what this purchase price cost Jesus. It cost his life. It cost crucifixion. It cost public humiliation so that he could pay our debt, the debt of sin, and he could purchase us for himself. More on that as we make our way through this passage. But what are the cultural barriers to redemption? You would think with all of the the benefits of redemption that everybody we talk to about redemption would want it for themselves. But there are some cultural barriers. And, And I put three up here on the screen for you. These aren't all inclusive or comprehensive, but, but these might give you some ideas of, of why redemption is, is, is so uh, resistant, why people in our culture resist the idea of redemption. First, because redemption demands that we understand our indebtedness. You are a debtor. You are under obligation. You are under bondage. And nobody in this culture wants to admit that they owe anybody anything. Matter of fact, if you are actually in debt, it's somebody else's fault normally that you're in debt because of something that's happened to you. You don't have what other people have, and because you don't have it, your indebtedness is their fault, not yours. It also demands that we acknowledge accountability. If you are in, if you are knee in need of redemption. There is some sense of accountability then to that person who has redeemed you. There is a moral standard. There is an absolute, and nobody in our culture outside of those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ want to admit that they're not inherently good. They want to think that there's some goodness inside and there's no accountability to anybody outside of themselves. And finally, it demands that we display humility. 
This posture of humility and brokenness to admit indebtedness, to admit that you need, to to admit that somebody else has to step in and fix your problems. It takes some humility to ever go to a place of asking for help and admitting that there is a need. So we come this morning to our text. Ruth, the book of Ruth is opened and, and helped us step through an understanding where, where Ruth has come to Boaz in our passage from last week, and she's essentially opened the door for Boaz, who is a redeemer, to purchase her, as it were, to come alongside and provide the security to provide the provision that was afforded to her through the law. Ruth asks Boaz in chapter 3, verse 9, she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer, meaning you are a place of refuge. You are a place of security. And we'll develop this some more as we make our way through. In response to this, Boaz says in chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, he says, I will do for you all that you ask. For all of my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if not, if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So Ruth does as Boaz instructs. She makes her way then back to Naomi's home. And certainly what is formulating in her mind is what happens next? What do we do, Naomi? And to that, Naomi responds in verse 18. She says, wait, my daughter, until you learn uh, how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, this word that's translated wait is the same word we're going to see in the next several verses of chapter 4. It's the word for sit. It's the word for rest. It's the word for dwell and remain. The idea that Naomi is trying to convey to Ruth is just be patient. Just settle down. You can trust in your Redeemer, who is Boaz. You can trust that your Redeemer will not rest. He will fulfill his obligations to you today. It's the same word that we're going to see several times in the next several verses We're going to find two redeemers in our passage today. We're going to find them both sitting at the gate. They're both understanding the guidelines of the Mosaic Covenant. They're both agreeing to certain terms of business. But there is something fundamentally different between these two redeemers. So I want to draw that out for us this morning so you can understand that while there may be many different redeemers that are offered in our culture today, there's only one redeemer that can save you. That redeemer is Jesus Christ. And there are many pseudo-false redeemers out there who will offer you a better way in their minds. And it may seem better for a time. But there's only one redeemer. There's only one true redeemer, Jesus Christ himself. So let's turn our attention to this first redeemer. I'm going to refer to him as the self-serving redeemer. That kind of gets to the heart of what differentiates him from Boaz. He is the self-serving redeemer we find through verses 1 and 6. Let me read verse 1 and 2 for us to set this context for us. Now it says, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. There's our word to sit. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, my friend, sit 
here's our word, down here, and he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Why does the passage refer to sitting so many times? Because in this sense, they're acting. It seems like they're the ones who are accomplishing this business transaction. And while, in a way, they were carrying out the obligations of the law, I want us to understand that every action that we do is always under the authority and sovereignty of God as they entrust themselves to this process. Boaz is believing that God, who is the one who is standing and working, is the one who will carry this out. They can sit. They can rest as well because they're trusting in God to accomplish the work. So we turn our attention to this self-serving redeemer and we see, first of all, that he submits to the timing of this meeting. He submits to the timing of this meeting. Here they are at the gate. Boaz is coming to the gate. This is kind of the, the open space uh, before the, the gate. This is a, where public affairs of the city were discussed. The gate of this walled city not only provided a, a measure of protection and access to the city, but it was a, a place where the gathering would take place for the citizens and official administration or judicial business was conducted. In this way, it was meant to be public. It was meant not to be hidden. It was, it was meant to, to, to have the attention of, of anyone who passed by. No shady deals, no uh, back closet kind of, of things taking place. But, but out in the open, Boaz had promised that he would deal with the matter that day, so he sits down. And in sitting down, what he's essentially doing, the citizens would recognize that an official act of legal business was about to take place. By God's providence, we see, behold, Behold, the Redeemer walks by. Certainly having things on his mind, certainly having a, a, a busy agenda, and Boaz asks him to sit down. We see the providential hand of God in working through these circumstances, very similarly to what we saw in chapter two, where Ruth happened to go to a field belonging to Boaz. This is the sovereign, providential hand of God in working out God's business in this way. But this self-proclaimed redeemer submits to the timing of this event and sits as well. Ten elders will come, respected men of the community. Because of the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing will be established. It's guided by the Mosaic law. And Boaz is a faithful law keeper. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 7 says, go up to the gate to the elders. This is what's happening. In Deuteronomy 25 8, it says, then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. All of these events are demonstrating and reflecting for us a heart of those who are submitting to the law. And as such, they are submitting to the timing of God's purposes for them. But not only is this self-serving um, redeemer submitting to the timing, he's also accepting the terms of the property agreement. That's point number two. And on the surface here at the beginning, we see very good things happening. Could he be the redeemer? Notice verse three. Then he said, Boaz is speaking to the redeemer, 
Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I will come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So Boaz speaks to the Redeemer. We find that Boaz refers to him as my friend. And in the Hebrew, this is really um, a way way to say so-and-so. This anonymous figure, this no-named Redeemer, is brought into the the forefront to help us understand that that while this is a specific individual, it's it's, it's pointing to the the other so-called Redeemers that we may have in our life. Redeemer is this predominant theme throughout the next 14 verses. 13 times it's used in 14 verses. Five times just in verse four alone. Naomi is selling a parcel of land, Boaz says. Ultimately, the land belonged to God. So in this way, it could not technically be sold. Leviticus 25, 23 to 24 says as much. It says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, meaning forever. It had a time constraint. For the land is mine. For you are, or you uh, are strangers and foreigners or, or sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. You see, the purpose of this was to help Israel understand that that while they sojourned in this promised land, they were really strangers and, and looking forward to the future inheritance and land they would have with God. It was still temporary. They were still displaced as people. They would need to view themselves as strangers, even in the land that God had given to them. It was to call their heart to faith in God and not in the land itself. So when a land was sold, it was more like a lease, because eventually that, that, um, that uh, um, possession would be turned back over to the original owner during the, land, uh, during the year of Jubilee, which happened every 49 years. Leviticus 25.31 kind of gives us that condition when it says, but the house, houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land They may be redeemed and they shall be released in the Jubilee. Meaning, you can purchase it for for yourself. You can use it as your own possession. But after the the 49 years have, have expired, depending upon where you are in that cycle, that land will then revert back to the original ownership. But in this case, however, the Redeemer would have stepped in for Elimelech who is Naomi's dead husband, and would then inherit this land for himself without having to relinquish control of it. So this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, this rare opportunity. And remember that Boaz has not mentioned Ruth up to this point. Both Naomi's sons were dead, and so in the mind of this Redeemer, he's going to inherit this land a golden opportunity that almost never comes about. He's happy to capitalize on this situation by saying at the end of verse four, I will redeem it. This was the business transaction of the century. 
And in this way, Boaz possesses, it, um, Boaz talks about, if you're unwilling to redeem it, I'll redeem it for myself. So he kind of ups the ante, as it were, in helping to shape the, the privileges of, of, of this contractual deal in the redeemer's mind, he can acquire this property and he can keep it in perpetuity. He would have been out of his mind to resist this transaction. Thus he says, I will redeem it. And Boaz must have said to himself, of course you will. Remember that Boaz has been thinking about this. Boaz has been directed by the Lord. Boaz has been thinking about this through the night for sure, asking God for wisdom. How do I set this up? How do I present this opportunity to the, to the Redeemer? He begins with property. Why does he begin with property? Why doesn't he begin with Ruth? This was all a masterful setup, and Boaz knew the stakes. We'll cover this in the next couple of verses before I answer this question. Why does Boaz begin with property? Next we turn to verses five and six where we're gonna see that, that once the rest of the deal comes to light, this redeemer is going to reject the threat of losing everything. It's gonna reject the threat of losing everything. Notice this with me in verse five. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. In other words, I will not redeem it. I will not accept the risk or the threat of that kind of business deal. Notice that Boaz introduces Ruth as Ruth the Moabite and also as Ruth the wife of the deceased. With this piece of information, everything has turned upside down. Somehow the Redeemer had lost sight of Ruth. He had forgotten that Elimelech had two sons. He had forgotten that those sons, while married, did not have children of their own, and so there was no heir And this was now a game changer. He had forgotten that Ruth was a part of this redemption process. Because with this piece of information, the firstborn son of Ruth would thus inherit back the land that first belonged to Elimelech. So all of this investment that was going to happen in this proceeding was going to be all for naught because eventually this land would return back to the heir of Ruth, the heir of Elimelech, this firstborn son. This had the real potential also of even erasing the Redeemer's name because if Ruth only had one son, not only would that son inherit Elimelech's uh, property, but would also inherit all of the property from this Redeemer. And that was untenable for this self-serving Redeemer. Verse six, then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This word for impair means to ruin, or endanger, or to corrupt, or destroy. I am not going to destroy my future legacy. 
This is gonna jeopardize my future, jeopardize all of my ancestor. It's not worth the cost. It's gonna cost me everything. All of this potential raises this underlying question then, why did Boaz lead with property? Why didn't he lead with Ruth? It's because Boaz understood the potential for this proposal. He knew it wasn't a slam dunk. He knew there was another redeemer in the way. And he knew that while he personally, Boaz, was willing to accept the responsibility of Ruth and essentially lay it all down, his identity, his future, for the sake of Ruth and Naomi and Elimelech, he knew that counting the cost and bringing that out into the open as this Redeemer is uh, accumulating or in his mind adding up all the benefits of this transaction, he's going cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. And then all of a sudden it comes crashing down when he, when Boaz introduces Ruth into the equation. This was going, this, what would have been a very lucrative transaction could have been a, a liquidating transaction for this man. Boaz wisely draws attention to the revenue or the income or the welfare in order to draw attention to the cost, the real stakes of what this decision was going to make. Boaz brings it back to cost. This had the potential of costing the Redeemer everything. And he was not willing to walk through that cost. Finally, we come, we've seen the self-serving Redeemer. Now let's turn our attention to the self-sacrificing Redeemer who takes his place. We see Boaz coming as a reflection, a, a really a foreshadowing of this future Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And we see uh, this self-sacrificing Redeemer rising to the front. Verse seven says, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. We're gonna come back to verses 11 and 12 next week. There's so much that we should not overlook. But for the sake of remaining on redemption, we'll focus and concentrate on just these verses for a moment. This transaction has been public. It's included the Redeemer. It's included the elders. It's included the people themselves as they are congregating around and seeing this business transaction transpire. They are all witnesses of this exchange, all aware of the implications. They all understand the cost. As was customary, the sandal of the Redeemer was handed to Boaz. The narrator of this account reminds the readers what this custom means in verse seven. It's to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel, he says. But why a sandal? Why a sandal of, of all things? 
One commentator puts it this way. I think it's helpful when he says, the custom itself arose from the fact that fixed property was taken possession of by treading upon the soil. And hence, taking off the shoe and handing it to the other was a symbol of transfer of possession or right or ownership. And if you remember when God made the covenant to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 in 15 and 17, promising him land and seed and blessing, in chapter 13, the Lord talks about the significance of walking on the land. When he says, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. This was the means by which Abraham was going to claim the land that God had already given to him by walking on this land. The same instruction was given later on to Abraham's uh, um, ancestors in Deuteronomy chapter 11, 24, when God tells the people through Moses, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to Lebanon, uh, to the Lebanon and from the river and the river Euphrates, Euphrates to the Western Sea. It happened as they tread the land. And so in handing off his sandal, the Redeemer, the first Redeemer, was then giving his right away to Boaz. You can then walk this possession, this property. You can claim for yourself the wife of Ruth, which, I, which was originally given to me, but I give up those rights to you. Take my sandal and walk those steps. So why did God do it this way? Because remember, this story in the book of Ruth is not a story of the characters on the surface. It's not just about Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. The story of the book of Ruth is a story about God. So why did God do it this way? He could have made it so easy and so simple. He didn't have to have a closer kinsman. He could have just had set up Boaz and Boaz would have claimed the prize of the property. He could have had Naomi, or excuse me, Ruth as his wife and, and all of the mess and all of the complicated details and proceedings would have gone away. Why did God do it this way? And the answer to that question, I'll cover next week. So come back. So what do, we, what do we learn from this story? At least one of the reasons why God did it this way is to bring the idea of redemption right out into the, so, into the open, right out so we could see it. So we could see the beauty and the wonder of redemption. We could see the cost, and that's the first reason. First, we learn about the cost of our redemption. It cost Jesus everything, just like it cost Boaz everything. Jesus was willing to lay down his life as we find in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 where it says, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ laid it down for you. He paid the price for your sin on the cross. 
The wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death. That's what everybody in this room deserves. We deserve death physically and spiritually. Separation from God forever. But the cost of Jesus Christ in coming to the earth and paying the price for our sin by dying in our place on the cross sets it up so that we can come to him, ask for forgiveness, and receive cleansing and forgiveness and peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It only happens because of that cost. But there's a second lesson. Second, we learn about the conditions of our redemption. And by conditions, I'm not talking about what it takes for you to receive the gift of this redemption. What I'm talking about is those who have received redemption need to meet certain conditions in order to demonstrate that they belong to God. We find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, when it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And the condition is, if you've experienced the benefits of God's redemption for you, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to God. You are his purchased possession. And if that registers in your mind, what that means is that God owns you. God has purchased you. He's bought you. This redemption equals purchase. It, remain, it, it equals possession. God, you belong to God, and that is a beautiful thing. But it means that because you belong to God, that every part of your life then must be lived to the glory of God in every way. No part of your life belongs to you. It all belongs to God. He's purchased every part. Have you given Jesus everything, all of you? Are you spending your life for his glory? That's what redemption has accomplished for us. That's what it means. You and I belong to God. What could be better than to belong to the king of the universe, the God who is over all, who loves and forgives and shows grace and kindness? Do you belong to God? Father, we thank you for this great story. We thank you for the way that you have shown what redemption looks like from these characters. You bring yourself right out into the open. We praise you for Jesus, for the, for the price of salvation, the cost of your son Jesus, the precious blood of Christ. And we, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to live as those who belong to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.